Good evening. We're thankful that you're back with us this evening. Most everyone, maybe you're here for the first time today. We understand that as well, but we are thankful that you've chosen to be here as we worship together for just a few moments this evening. Uh, I've got a bit of a self-timer tonight as that smell of that food comes in through the back. I'm going to lose everybody in the back first, and I can watch it come forward, and I'll know it's time to, to stop. Uh, Cam- Campbell did ask Jamie earlier uh, when we were going to eat, and she Ask that you tell them whenever your daddy's done, then that's when we'll eat. So, uh, but we hope that you'll plan to stay uh, stay around for just a few moments this evening, as we will get to enjoy some of the good food together, and we'll try to get through it here tonight and, and be able to enjoy that time together. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've lived until you've heard Joe Varner pray. I uh, appreciate so much his kind words. Appreciate very much the kind comments about the lesson this morning. Uh, I'll tell you that was born somewhat out of a lesson that I heard at Polishing the Pulpit. I've told some of you this already. Uh, about dynamic scripture reading was the title. But it's an interesting idea that oftentimes we take scripture and we break it down into verses. We break it down into little pieces that we pull out. When in reality, especially when you think about the letters of the Apostle Paul in particular, as he would write to those in Ephesus and the Philippians and the Colossians, that it was meant to be read as a letter. And sometimes we would do well to remember that, to think about it in that kind of way. And this particular brother said... You know, sometimes he takes time and tries to read scripture, such as maybe in a Sunday evening service, in that kind of way. So we think about the connection. And so, yeah, when you think about Paul's sermons, it's meant to be a sermon. That's the way it was delivered to Agrippa. And it's kind of interesting when we think about that, as opposed to sometimes just pulling bits and pieces out of it. So, thinking about Posh in the Pulpit, it's a good time to mention one more time this good uh, service that's going to be provided to our congregation here. And because of the slide, I'll uh, tell you one more time to check the password there. If you try to log on tonight or during the week, you'll want to use the at symbol at the end as we do in our email addresses as opposed to the way we got it in the bulletin. But we'll get that corrected and we'll run that in the bulletin as long as we have room for a while. It may come and go, but we want you to use this service. There are a lot of good lessons there that you will be able to hear And we want to make sure that we get good use out of it. As it says on there, there are no viewing limits. There are no download limits. So by all means, please take advantage of this, um, especially to our teachers. You never know. There's a lot of good things in there. But even to our families, there's parenting lessons, uh, all kinds of things. And even to our ladies, there is usually for every hour at Polish in the Pulpit that there are lessons and there are main lessons. There's a ladies lesson almost every one of those hours. So there are a good number of lessons by women, even in some of the ones that you've been listening to and using in your class, Sheila Butt and ladies like that. Uh, so please take advantage of those. I wanted to mention one other thing to you, if you can make it out on there. It's an, a website called truth.fm. So again, with weird weird websites and things, it is truth.fm. Not .com, but .fm. The biggest thing that I learned about this over the last couple of days is this website has radio stations where you can listen to gospel preaching But even more so, they have a singing uh, station now. If you're sitting around the house or maybe at your desk and you want to listen to something that will encourage you, truth, the word truth, dot FM. And you can download the app. You can go to the website. And they even have a singing station now. I pulled it up Saturday while I was folding clothes for a few moments. And you can listen to congregational singing just nonstop. It's very encouraging. As well as there are lessons on there with different stations. Some of you don't use computers, smartphones, that kinds of thing. It's perfectly fine. But if you do and you're always already interested in listening to good quality content or good quality singing, take advantage of these because they are out there. 
Tonight, we want to think for a few moments about a topic or a thought process that comes about in the world sometimes. I titled this lesson, and there's a reason for the title to be this way, False Doctrine, or it could have been False Teaching, the idea of universalism. The reason I titled it this way is this may become a series. I don't know. I've not intended that for be the case. I don't plan to do it necessarily two or three or four Sundays in a row. But it may be that we come with up with something in October, November, December. Another idea that would be good for us to look at. I'll give Jerry Corbin credit, even though he's not here as they're still on their trip. But he had handed me an article recently, and we're going to share some of that tonight. Uh, about this. And he said, this is interesting. And I said, well, absolutely it is. And I'd like for us to consider it. And so he'll have to catch the podcast later himself. But, but I thought it might be a good time for us to consider this type of doctrine or this type of thought. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse number 15, Jesus himself says there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus begins to warn the people who would be hearing him, there are going to be people among you and people in the world who will share false ideas, false doctrine, false prophets. In 2 Peter chapter 2 in verse number 1, Peter says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Again, very stern words from Peter that there will be false things out there that can bring about destruction if we are not careful. And then John, in 1 John chapter 4, and verse number 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's some truth there a lot of truth there even as we joke about it sometimes I think it was Friday night we were playing cards here at game night we were teaching Travis how to play and somebody said you're going to believe the preacher you know and he said well yeah but he always says to check what he says you know that's what he always says and I don't say it every service and we were joking about it on game night but it's absolutely true if you're going to sit there and believe everything I say then I probably don't want to be here or preach to you because that's not the way it works that's not the way I want it to work I have to do the study, and I want to present the message to you. But if you believe me, then you may believe somebody else who comes along later for whatever reason. We have to test every spirit. We do not believe everything we hear. We have to know if the message is of God. So false doctrine. There's a lot of different things out there. And again, we may come back to this in the future in different ways. But the idea of universalism. This is sometimes also called universal reconciliation. But ultimately, what we're talking about for universalism is this is the idea that all human beings will ultimately be saved. Now, this is slightly different than the question that we had come up on Wednesday night. Wednesday night in our Bible class had a question come up about maybe who will be saved. Or another way that it's sometimes worded is, do members of the church of Christ think they're the only people that are going to be saved or the only people who are going to heaven. And as I answered Wednesday night, that's a, it's a pretty deep question. It takes a lot longer than we may have just in a few moments to answer. I think the difference, though, that I would say between that question and this idea, as you see on the screen, is when we talk about our, our people in the church of Christ, the only ones going to heaven, 
part of that discussion centers around religious people. You say, well, what about those who attend a place that wears the name Methodist or Baptist? Well, this doctrine says that all human beings will ultimately be saved. So it's a little different because what we're talking about is maybe somebody who's not even someone who doesn't even attend church services anywhere. We're not talking about somebody who maybe just believes something different on baptism or something different about something else, but just all human beings will ultimately be saved. What's interesting in doing this research and thinking about this is this doctrine has been around for a long time. In fact, there are a couple of guys that we would call church fathers or early church fathers. If you've never heard that phrase, and I think we've used it before, but that's the idea that there were people and men in particular who were writing around the time of the first century. They were maybe even eyewitnesses to some of the things that the apostles and those were doing, but their writings are not inspired. We don't find them in the Bible, but sometimes we refer to them as a matter of historical record, if you will. But at least a couple of those guys, one of them by the name of Clement, Clement of Alexandria, was writing around the year 150 or the years 150 to 215. So very close there as we think about the beginning uh, of the church. Clement was one who believed in this idea. Another one was Origen. You may have heard that name before as well. Origen was more around the years 200s, 200 to 254 or so. But both of those men, early church fathers, believed in this doctrine. They did not believe that anyone would be beyond salvation. Now, this idea was introduced to America, if you will, around the year 1770. 1770. John Murray was a former Calvinist who would promote this doctrine here in America. 1770. But maybe there's a few other names that you're more familiar with. Karl Barth was one person, a theologian. William Barclay is a name that a lot of people know. But all of these folks together believe this idea that all human beings will be completely and finally saved ultimately. And so it's been entertained by a lot of denominations, a lot of cults, even if you will, in one form or another. So it's important, and I think it's beneficial that we think about this tonight. We've got four points, and then the lesson will be yours. Number one. Universalism is actually illogical as we think about the case. The first two points tonight are going to center, first of all, around man, but secondly, around God. And I think that's interesting because whether we talk about God and his word or whether we talk about mankind, we've got problems with this kind of idea. But universalism is, first of all, illogical. This error, this idea teaches or suggests that man's use of his ability to choose is irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you choose that there is right or wrong. No matter what one believes or no matter how he lives, a life of obedience to our maker or a downright rebellious sinful attitude, it doesn't matter. He is beyond eternal punishment. He's not going to be punished because of universalism. That seems very silly to us in some ways to say that, that no matter how bad a person is or sinful or rebellious they are, or if they believe in atheism or whatever, that they're still going to be saved. There's some problems there. He will be saved no matter what choices he makes. I, I just have problems kind of fathoming that, but there's some people who will believe this. In fact, when it comes to this first point, I mentioned that we're going to talk about man. We don't even teach this to our children. I've said this before, but when you look and go into a kindergarten classroom 
I mean, let's go to where we teach children first of all, first of all about life and the way that rules work and the way that things go. We put rules up on the wall that says you should do this and you should not do that. You should not use your words this way. You should not put your hands on somebody else. And I'm here to tell you with this idea, people want to keep God out of schools. But if you're going to put the words on the wall that there is right and wrong, you're not keeping God out of schools. Because the idea that there is right or wrong comes from a just God. We're going to get there in just a moment. But if you're going to keep God out of schools, you're worried about prayer and you're worried about Bibles and all these other things, well, we might as well just take the rules off the wall. Because to say that something is right and something is wrong, there's a bit of a problem here. This idea is illogical. Look with me in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse number 42. When I was thinking about this particular lesson, you know, we, we all know some of the major pa uh, passages that discuss this. One of them, of course, is Joshua 24, 15. You probably maybe even have it on your wall about choosing this day whom you will serve. We, we know that. The world knows that verse, having a choice. But universalism would say that that choice doesn't matter. But Paul goes on to talk about it in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 48 there. Or as Luke records for us, in verse 42, the Jews are going out of the synagogue and the Gentiles are the ones that are begging for these words that might be preached to them. We come on down and there's a problem here between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are jealous. They don't want, look in verse number 45, they don't want the Gentiles to hear. They're filled with envy. And in verse number 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. We don't have time this evening to get into this whole concept here of the Jews and the Gentiles and all of that, but suffice it to say, the Jews have a problem. They're being envious, but Paul is telling them, Paul and Barnabas are growing bold enough to say, You've rejected it. You have made your choice and you are rejecting Jesus the Christ. You're rejecting the word of God. We have a choice in life to do right and to do wrong. And that comes from this just God that we serve. So the idea that it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what happens, doesn't go very far. And again, it doesn't go very far in a kindergarten classroom. I don't know why we think we can apply it to life sometimes. But in connection number two, universalism is a reflection upon the justice of God. So I told you already that we would talk about man in the first point and the idea that it's illogical even by our own standards. But secondly, when we come to reflecting upon the justice of God, we have a problem there as well. If the way that one person lives is of no consequence, if evil is no worse than good, and if obedience and rebellion are equivalents and are rewarded equally, no matter if you choose obedience or rebellion, then why do we do anything good? What does it matter? Some people say Christians don't have any fun. Well, then let's just go ahead and have fun in the sinful way if it doesn't matter ultimately. But the problem is, this is a problem with a just God. Where, where, where would there be any contrast between Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler? if good and bad don't matter. Universe, universalism is an assault upon the justice of a perfect God. You know, justice and this idea of God's justice, 
Justice demands punishment. Let's move past kindergarten. Let's come into teenage years, into young adult years. What would we do if the government decided to stop punishing rape and robbery and assault? Well, people would be up in arms that somebody could just get away with something, but what does it matter if there is no justice? Justice demands punishment. And when it comes to the idea of universalism, people would believe that there is no punishment for any rebellious behavior. In Psalm chapter 89, in verse number 14, the psalmist says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. What kind of God do we serve if he doesn't stand upon a throne of righteousness and justice? That we can trust that there is a right way and we can follow in it. And not only that, but despite what we want, there will be justice for those who are wrong. Part of the question that we sometimes struggle with is that there are good people who might be punished. We struggle with that. But I'm thankful that I serve a just God who will give reward to those who are faithful and obedient. And not just because anybody makes any choice and it doesn't really matter. Look in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 3 for just a moment. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 3. Paul says, And do you think this, O man... You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The sort of rhetorical question or the idea, who thinks they're going to be the one to escape the punishment of God or the justice or of God or even the righteousness of God? We've got a problem here, even in our first two points, because first of all, there's a problem even in the way our own mind works and our society functions But even then, secondly, it is a reflection upon the justice of God and the just God that we serve. Number three, and maybe this is the main point uh, before we finish with number four in a moment, but maybe the main idea, it, of course, contradicts Scripture. The Bible clearly affirms that many people will be lost. A few passages for us to look at together. Matthew chapter 25 and verse number 46 Matthew 25 and verse number 46, as Jesus is discussing the fact that the Son of Man, that he will judge the nations, he says there, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There will be punishment. He mentions that in other statements that he makes, even on the sermon Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we think about the idea that there are few who are on that narrow road. There are many who are on the broad path to destruction. Look with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This has been one that that has been uh, something I like to consider uh, just because of the interesting way that it's worded. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it really begins with verse 3, but jumping down to about verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 3 or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse number 7, that God will judge, and in verse number 7, and to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In verse 8 is where the power comes in, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Bible clearly clearly affirms that many people will be lost. The consequence of spiritual rebellion, it can only be rectified by justification. Look with me again in Romans, this time Romans chapter 3, 
Romans chapter 3 because there's several connections, there's several verses here. Romans 3 and verse number 24. The consequence of spiritual rebellion can only be uh, rectified by justification. Verse 24, being justified, you know verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The only way that we can be rectified to God is by justification provided by the grace of God. It's only found in the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. This justification from sin is only available, look in Romans uh, chapter 6 now, Romans chapter 6 and verse number 7, it's only available to those who are baptized into Christ. Verse number 3 talks about that that is those who were baptized into his death. And through the obedience that we go through, through the obedience that a believer goes through, the believer is made free from sin. Even in chapter 6 there in verses 17 through 18. We are set free from sin and we become slaves of righteousness. This is the way we are justified through faith, through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And when we think about universalism and the idea that there are many people that will be lost, we must consider what the Bible has to say about this and about how we can be justified. Notice as well in 1 Peter chapter 4, as we talk about the idea of Scripture contradicting this, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 17 through 18. First of all, we notice in this particular passage, the context is important. 1 Peter 4 and verses 12 and 13, we notice that there is suffering for those who are in Christ. There is suffering for people who would follow after him. Paul, or Peter talks about the fiery trial, partaking of Christ's suffering, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. But we come down to verses 17 and 18. Peter says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Peter asks a couple of, again, rhetorical questions here. And he's driving home the point in this greater context that if hardships, if the sufferings that we face were to oppress the Lord's people, then what would be the fate of those people who do not obey the gospel of God? If Christians are going to suffer, Peter's saying, then what's going to happen to those who would not follow after Christ? And then in verse number 18, if the righteous are to be saved with the difficulty or with the suffering, what will happen to those who persist in their ungodly, sinful way of life? It's a question that I imagine that those people who read that letter from Peter would understand the answer to. If I'm doing my best to live faithfully, and yet I'm going to suffer, those who would not live faithfully are going to be in for a lot worser fate. Universalism contradicts Scripture. Peter, Paul, Jesus... We could go on and on tonight simply about this point. But suffice it to say that we must realize that Scripture actually teaches that there will be many who are lost. Which leads us to our final point tonight, which is that in general, universalism is a human illusion. 
This philosophy makes no sense whatsoever. It is void of all logical and biblical evidence, and it is only the illusion of people who would be rebellious and who refuse to submit to the authority of Scripture. That's where it comes from. Which drives us home to our last point here, and I think we could sum it all up by saying this. Universalism is an idea that men wish was the case rather than what is actually the case. The facts of the matter is we wish sometimes that universalism were true. Now, I would even argue maybe that as Christians we shouldn't be that way. Certainly we don't want to see good people lost. Certainly we don't want to see family members lost. But if we're truly serving a God who is righteous and full of justice, then I don't even know that we should feel this way. But I understand. I understand. We've all got it. We've all got friends, co-workers, even family members who are good people that the thought of them being lost for all of eternity just rips us apart inside. But even though we've got that human side that pulls at our heartstrings and causes us to want to say that all people will ultimately be saved, the fact of the matter is that's not the case. This idea is based upon simply what men wish were the case. In 1961, there was a consolidation of what's known as the Unitarian and Universalist churches. When they kind of combined their movements, and you can do lots of research on that, here in the United States, there were more than a thousand, more than a thousand Unitarian and Universalist churches together. But at the same time, it is a religion of no substance. It doesn't even connect at all with what the Bible has to say. One more passage in the lesson will be yours, 2 Peter chapter 3. I know you know this one because we quote 2 Peter 3, 9 very often. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us or to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Tonight, we didn't have the time to get into all the different arguments because there are universalists who would even use scripture to say that God believes that all men will ultimately be saved. And this is one, because it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think that statement's true. I believe that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is a true statement. But notice in context and in connection, verse number 7. Because before Peter gets to verse 9 and verse 7, he says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. You see, Peter points out that God is long-suffering toward us and is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But just two verses before, he's mentioning and talking about how there is destruction for those who would be found to be ungodly. How do we rectify that? How do we come to a conclusion how that makes sense? God does want all men to come to repentance. But God also knows, as we can point even backwards in the history of time, that not all men will choose that. But even us tonight, we are with God. We are on the same side. We want all men to come to repentance. We are not willing that any should perish. But the bottom line is, there is still obedience to be had. There is still a thing or things that we must do. God wants all men to be saved, but he's given his word so that we might understand what that means and how that works.
He has given us his simple plan of salvation. As we put this slide up, most every sermon, to allow us to consider that it is a choice. No, not all men will ultimately be saved or all human beings will ultimately be saved, but those who are found to be obedient. As Paul would write there again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he's coming, Jesus is coming to take vengeance in flaming fire on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even as we talked this morning about Paul's great sermon thinking about what the gospel is, that Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. The simple plan of salvation is connected in that, and that as we are baptized for the remission of our sins, as we go into the watery grave, we rise again, we're able to walk in newness of life, we're added to the church, and we can begin living faithfully. Universalism is one of those that sounds a little crazy sometimes. I don't know anybody that believes that. Maybe, maybe not. The point is, for each one of us tonight, and even in this moment, as we are about to sing this song, are you right with God? You can be sure that you've done what his word has said to become gospel obedient, so that when he comes in flaming fire, he's not taking vengeance on you or on me, because we have been obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you need to become a Christian? Do you need to do just that tonight? Or do you need to come back to him? We'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.